the, one of the wonders or the mysteries, we would say one of the truths of Christmas, what we celebrate in the incarnation that the church has celebrated and tried to articulate for years is to say that he became like us so that we could become like him. One of the reasons that the, the church has insisted on the real bodily nature, the human nature, the flesh of Jesus Christ is because if Christ did not assume, did not take to himself, if the Son of God did not take to himself a nature just like ours, which is flesh and blood, which is human emotions, which is a human mind, then there is no guarantee that we, as we exist in our nature, have the hope of ultimate redemption. But because the Son became like one of us, lived a perfect life, suffered according to the flesh, was raised bodily, and even glorified as a man, we know that our destiny or what we are moving towards is nothing less than what Christ himself has already experienced. That is to say that because Christ took on our humanity, just as he suffered and died and entered into glory, we know that although we will suffer and die, we also will enter into glory. And just as his body was raised literally, physically from the dead, so will ours. So one of the things that we rejoice over when we think about Christmas, when we think about the incarnation, is that this was necessary, this was part of God's plan to be made like one of us so that we could be made like him. It's incredible. James chapter 5. Last two verses of the book. James writes this. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me as we pray? Father, in this time that we have, we ask that we would be attentive to your word, that we would be sensitive to the work of your Holy Spirit, and that you would cause your word to have its intended result because of your goodness to us. We pray, Father, that if there is any here, if there is anyone here who has not heard the voice of Jesus calling to them as their good shepherd, that today would be their day of salvation. We ask, Father, that if there are any here, those who name the name of Christ, who have been adopted into your family, who have been straying from the truth, that this would be a warning and a wake-up call that we would receive this text as a gracious appeal to turn and go back to Christ so that we would be saved from greater harm and even death in the end. We thank you for your patience with us and for your promises. We thank you especially for Jesus and the power of your spirit who indwells us and is among us even this moment. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. So the last two verses of James, 
Interesting, we might want to say right up front that the last part of James is given over to addressing sickness and illness. All right, so we just spent two weeks starting in verse, verses, uh, verses 13 through 15, talking about uh, two weeks ago, the situation in which a member of the congregation is, in, uh, is suffering from some sort of chronic or debilitating, perhaps even life-threatening illness, such that the picture seems to be they are unable to go to the church or to the church leaders to ask for special prayer, but they have to call for the elders to come to them. The sickness is so severe. And that the promise is, is that as the elders of the church pray, that God works through the prayers of his people, and even if they have committed any sins, they will be forgiven. And then last week, similarity, starting in verse 16, again with the issue of sin and sickness, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Again, the issue of sickness is at play. And we're being encouraged to pray and to plead and to ask for God to intervene, even as we take an account of our sin in the possibility that God actually may be using sickness as a way to convict us of sin that we have been hiding or harboring. But then you get to the end of the letter, and it could have been that at any point James would have wrapped up his letter and been done with it. He could have ended in verse 18 talking about the effective prayer of Elijah, who is a man just like us, and encouraging us to pray, and sort of closing off on this note of the fact that even when you're sick and desperate, that God still hears the prayers of his people. But instead, he comes to verses 19 and 20, and he seems to turn away from the issue of sickness to the issue of spiritual illness. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let me just say this before we start looking at the teaching in these two verses. And I say this with all humility and even some trepidation in light of some of the suffering and the grief and the sorrow that's represented in this very congregation. One of the things that I think is good for us to remember and to recall even if it just simply by the fact that this is the way that James chooses to end his letter, is to remember that as Christians, we know that there are things worse than sickness. We know that there are things worse than physical death. That is not to say that we don't care about sickness, bodily illness. It's not to say that we don't grieve or we don't sorrow when we encounter death. But it is to say that because our eyes have been open to the fact that all of the sickness and death that we see in the world really is the result of sin, which separates us from God and makes us guilty and deserving of judgment, even worse than physical sickness is soul sickness. Even worse than death in this life is the second death to come. Parents, do you think that way about your children? 
Do you consider that for all of the health, for all of the good teaching and education that you may give them, that if they don't know Christ in the end, it's going to be for nothing? Grandparents, how do you pray for your grandchildren? How do you pray for your children, even though they're adults and out on their own? Do you pray that they'll be successful in their work? Do you pray that they'll get into a good college? Do you pray that they'll have an easy, comfortable, happy life? Or do you pray that they'll know Christ? Edgewood, are you convinced of the fact that for all of the comfort and the riches and the pleasures that this world can offer, that if at the end of the day we don't have Christ, we have Nothing. What does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his soul? There are things worse than physical sickness and disease. There are things worse than physical death. We want to do three things here as we look at these two verses. As James makes, it, makes this appeal for the church to save or to rescue or to turn the strained member, three things that we want to consider. Number one, that truth, particularly in this context, I think as James is, conceives of it or as he addresses it, that truth is a way of life. That's not to say that truth is not contained in doctrine, that there is not objective truth that James is talking about, but in this context, that truth, the kind of truth that James is talking about, is not merely doctrinal, but it's also practical. It's not merely what we believe, but it's how we live. So truth is a way of life. Number two, we want to acknowledge the fact that James is giving this warning to Christians which is to say, number two, that straying from the way of truth is dangerous or even deadly. And then number three, just in case we are tempted to miss the obvious, we want to take note of the fact that whenever the church finds in its midst or perhaps moving outside of its midst, a straying or wandering member, that it's the church who actually does the work to retrieve them and bring them back. Or, if I could say it this way, and we'll repeat this as we get to the end, it's ultimately your responsibility to turn your wayward brother or sister back and to set them back on the right path. Number one, truth is a way of life. One of the things that, that sometimes can happen, James is, is held up or is held out as the most practical book in all of the Bible, right? There's not a whole lot of talk about uh, deep, heady theology or doctrine like you might get in Paul or in some of the passages of Peter or even John, but all of this is about the way that we live the Christian life. It's very practical. It's very down-to-earth, sort of where the rubber meets the road, nuts and bolts, and then you come to the last verses, and if you're not careful, you can take this statement about straying from the truth as James sort of realizing all of a sudden, oh my goodness, I haven't talked anything about doctrine this entire letter. 
I need to say something about the importance of doctrine. Don't stray from good doctrine. That doesn't seem to be the, the point that James is making here. All right, here's how I would encourage you to think through the warning that James concludes his letter with. That is to say, if you look at verse 19, he talks about straying from the truth and the need for someone to be turned back. But if you look in verse 20, he says, Let him know that he who turns a sinner not back to the truth, but who turns a sinner from the error of his way. The point being that what James seems to be indicating here is that turning from the truth is often characterized or seen by the way that you live. If you see someone straying from the truth, the way that we are to live, that's the Christian, that's the brother or sister that you need to work to retrieve, that you need to work to turn back. Well, well what counts as straying from the truth then? Especially in light of the, the warnings that you're trying to save this straying, wandering brother or sister from death. I don't think that's physical death either. I think he's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about judgment. What kind of gross immorality would count as straying from the truth? The things that James would consider to be strained from the truth, strained from the true life that God has called us to, would be things like not persevering in trials, not seeking God's wisdom, but trying to find wisdom elsewhere, hearing the word, but not obeying the word, showing favoritism within the church, not controlling or bridling our speech. Trying to cover over our jealousy and selfish ambition with a veneer of worldly wisdom. Trying to claim that we belong to God while maintaining a friendship with the world. In other words... If James is still thinking about all of the things that he's already written, then everything that James has warned us about, everything that James has instructed us to do in our single-minded devotion to the Lord, I think James would get to the end of the letter and say something like, and if you see any in your midst who are starting to stray from this life that we've been called to live, go chase that member down. They're in danger. Strain from the truth and the danger that that exposes us to is not always in the form of blatant heresy. You don't necessarily have to deny that Jesus is the Son of God to put your soul in danger.
think, just, just listen. Here are a couple other places where you get the idea that the truth of what we believe ultimately ties into the way that we live. In John 3, 21, he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be shown as having been produced or worked by God. People who are born again, John says, are people who practice the truth. They don't merely profess it. It's certainly not less than professing or confessing the truth, but it's certainly more than that. They profess the truth and they practice the truth. In 1 John 1, 6, John says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, referring to God, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. A Christian who does not live the truth that he or she professes to believe is in grave, serious danger. Strain from the truth also, we, we should say, we don't know in this passage, whether it is active or passive. By that we mean this. The, the strain from the truth could be active in the sense that you are knowingly disobeying the instructions, the commands of God through the Scriptures. It could be a knowing wandering. I know what God has said. I know what I'm called to do. I know what the life of Christ is to look like. But for whatever reason, right now in this moment, I just simply don't care. Or I think there's something better on offer that I can get moving away from the life of Christ and getting a little bit of life in the world. That's an active strain. There can also be a passive kind of strain or wandering, which has more of the idea of when you're duped or deceived into thinking that the direction that you're going is a spiritual direction or that the direction that you're moving in really is of no real consequence at the end of the day. These matters are indifferent. And you're deceived into thinking that it's okay to move in this direction. And so you stray, not knowingly, but because you've been tricked and you've bought into the philosophies of this world or of the culture or the society around you. Christian, let me warn you. One of the ways that we stray from the truth and this is one of the most subtle ways that we stray from the truth. If the truth is a way of life that we are called to, as we find it in Christ, oftentimes the way that we stray from the truth is by excusing ourselves because this is just my habit. This is just my way of doing things. This is just my personality or my temperament. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that what you may chalk up to your personality or your preference is actually poison to your soul? 
For example, introverts, I'm not trying to pick on you when I say this, but I'm going to use introverts as an example. Is it possible that because you are an introvert, you don't feel the need for regular fellowship with the body of Christ? Because I just don't need that kind of fellowship, even though God has commanded that we gather together with one another on a regular basis, even though God has called us to sing to one another, to encourage one another, to correct one another, to rebuke one another. Because I'm just not that kind of a person, I can take it or leave it, whether I come to church on Sunday morning or not. Whether, whether or not I have regular, meaningful fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you ever considered that that thing that you call just a quirk of your personality is death to you? And there are any number of other habits or quirks or peculiarities in our person that we use to cover over our sin or to try to justify why we don't live the life that God has called us to live. If your justification for straying from the truth is just something along the lines of, well, this is just my way, you're exactly right. That's the problem. It's your way and not His way. you are making an incalculable risk when you don't live according to the truth of God's Word. Young people, and by that I mean not just young people, young adults in your 20s, or young people, teenagers, even young people, not even teenagers yet. If you're here in this service and you consider yourself young, and you're actually young, <laughs> listen, listen, listen. It is never too early to think about the direction that your life is moving in. Never too early. Kids, teenagers, young adults, there are people seated in this room who can tell you through painful personal experience that the little seeds of sin that they held in their youth that they thought were harmless, that they thought were of no significant consequence, that they thought that they could just throw away at any given time when they chose to, would look back and would tell you those small tiny seeds, those things that I thought were just insignificant habits or desires or likes or preferences, those small sinful seeds began to take root in my heart. And it sprung up in such a way that it brought great corruption and damage and sickness that I wish I could have avoided altogether.
consider, especially if you are on the young end of life, that turning from the way that you know is right will not put you on a path that you are going to be able to manage or control. No one controls sin. If you are not killing sin by the power of the Spirit, sin is killing you. So when we're told that strain from the truth is something that we need to be aware of, it's something that's dangerous, in light of the whole flow and scope of what James has written in his letter, the truth that he's talking about here is not merely what we confess to believe as far as our doctrinal statements are concerned, but it is also about the life that we live that conforms to the truth of God. Number two, if the kind of strain or if the truth that James has in mind is not merely doctrinal truth, but truth in the way that we live, living according to the truth, we also then want to take the next step and say, and living that kind of life or straying from that life of truth that we've been called to live is extremely dangerous and deadly. Let me pause right here for a second and just make an appeal to anyone who's here who does not know Christ, who has not been brought from death to life. You have not known what it means to be born again by repentance and faith. When God, through the grace of Christ, by the power of His Spirit, bring someone to salvation through repentance and faith. There are three gifts, at least three gifts, that God gives to every one of His children to keep them in the way of life once they have had their new birth. He gives them His Spirit. He gives the Spirit of Christ. He gives the Word of Christ. And He gives the people of Christ. All three of those gifts that keep us in the way are gifts that God in Christ gives to His people. If you are not in Christ, you have none of those gifts. You have nothing and no one to warn you of the danger that you are in as your life hurls towards judgment and destruction. You say, that's okay, I don't need the extra help. I can figure it out for myself. No, you can't. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. If you are outside of Christ this morning, you are already on your way to death and destruction, whether you realize it or not. And my appeal to you is to consider that the way of salvation, the way that you can be spared, the judgment that you deserve, is to turn and find salvation in Jesus Christ. 
who suffered and died in your place and was raised again so that not only your sin, but death itself could be defeated. And he offers that to anyone who would come and take it on faith. But for the Christian not to get sidetracked or lost by this, understand that when James is, is talking here in verses 19 and 20, he's talking to Christians about straying from the truth. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth. If he is not turned, that Christian who strays, if they are not turned, they run the risk of death. Listen, people, be very careful that at this particular point in time, at this juncture, you don't pull out the eternal security card and abuse that card or misinterpret the promises that come with eternal security. Eternal security, the doctrine as we understand it, as the Scriptures teach it, as we endeavor to preach it, is not just a free pass to live however you want to live. The doctrine of eternal security ultimately says that God will not fail to keep us in the faith. Not that we can stray from the faith and suffer no consequences for it. There is only life to be found in Christ. And to abandon or reject Christ is to reject and abandon the life that Christ brings. For example, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. We just finished up a study in 1 and 2 Thessalonians in Sunday school. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Second Thessalonians 2.13, Paul writes, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Chosen from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. In other words, one of the things that Paul says here is that anyone who has truly been saved by God through Christ is in the process of being saved by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Which means or which suggests that someone who gives no evidence of a sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, someone who is straying from the way of life, someone who is abandoning the truth of Christianity to live as their whims, as their desires, as their preferences see fit, 
is giving indication that they are not being sanctified by the Spirit. And if you're not being sanctified by the Spirit, you have legitimate reason to question whether or not you have in fact been saved. When Jesus teaches about the kind of reception that the gospel receives, the parable of the sower and the soils, the good soil, the good ground, is not the one that produces a quick-growing plant or fruit that's here one minute and gone the next. The good ground, the true evidence of saving faith, is the life that is fruit-bearing for the duration of its life. All of this is to say simply this, that because God promises to keep us in the faith, everything that God has promised, He has also provided for. Your security does not ultimately depend upon you. It depends upon God. But, but, precisely because it is ultimately a gift of God, your security, is itself reason to believe and to insist on the fact that your salvation, if it's true and genuine, will produce fruit that lasts and remains. Turn with me to John chapter 10. And we'll use this as a transition to our third point. John chapter 10, look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Just, just stop right there. If you are one of his sheep, Jesus himself says that evidence of that will be borne out by the fact that you follow him. And if Jesus elsewhere says in John 14 that I am the way, the truth, and the life, to follow Jesus means that you will remain on the path of truth. Does that mean that you'll never stray, that you'll never trip and stumble, that you'll never fall? No, 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 not at all. But it does mean that the trajectory of your life, the direction that you're moving in, is always centered on Christ. But notice he goes on to say, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, John 10, 28, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, 
and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The security for the Christian is security in the life that Christ has provided. And it's security in the power of Christ and in the power of His Father that Christ says is pictured by me holding everyone who belongs to me such that they can never be taken away. By the way, that certainly has to mean not just that they won't be taken away by someone else who will come and snatch them out of the Father's hand, but they will never ultimately get away from Christ because He won't allow them to wiggle their way out. How does Christ keep us in the faith? How does He keep us from straying from the truth? You could say, well, it's just like he says in John 10. It's just some mysterious, miraculous way, mystical, that he just holds us by the power of his hand. And there's a sense in which, of course, that's true. There is a mystical element to our faith where God works in unseen ways. But how does God keep his people in their faith in James 5, 19 through 20? If you haven't flicked back there, go ahead and turn back to John 5, or John 5, James 5. If it is impossible for one of God's children to be lost, for them to stray from the good shepherd, such that they end up in death and destruction, if the good shepherd will never allow that to happen, but will always be good and faithful to bring his sheep back, to keep them where they need to be. How does he do that in James 5, 19 and 20? How does he do it? He does it through the body of Christ. He does it through the church. If Jesus says in John 10 that no one can snatch them out of my hand, Think about the fact that the church is the body of Christ. The hand of Christ for the strained brother or sister becomes the church. It becomes you. You have an obligation, a responsibility to your brothers and sisters to do the work that Christ himself would do to keep one of your brothers and sisters from straying into death and in destruction. Not because you're ultimately confident that in your appeals or your persuasion or your effort or your work that you're going to do, the, do all the work, that you're going to be successful in retrieving them or bringing them back, but rather that you're confident that it's Christ in you working in the life of that brother and sister who is drawing them back to square one or center ground in the faith in their fellowship with Christ. God intends to use His people as the means to retrieve one another when we begin to stray and wander. So here's one of the things that we ought to do. We ought to do this every Sunday. We ought to look around the room and we ought to say, who is here and who is not here? 
And when you begin to notice that someone is not here for two weeks, for three weeks, for a month, for three months, for six months, there ought to be a red flag that goes up or some sort of warning light that says, that's not healthy, that's not right. God in His grace and wisdom has said that we need one another, that we need to regularly gather together to sit under His Word, to hear from one another the things that we confess together so that we will endure and be faithful to the end. And when we see signs that one of our brothers or sisters are beginning to stray or grow distant, we ought to consider that they are in great spiritual danger such that we want to retrieve them by the power of Christ so that they can be spared death and destruction in the end. This doesn't have to be super fancy. It doesn't have to be super complicated. For some of you, it could just be simply a matter of calling someone on the phone, or if you don't call right because no one calls today, texting someone, right? But listen, if they're going to ignore the text, you're going to have to turn it up a little bit. You may have to actually dial the number and call. Or... You ask someone to go have a bite to eat, or you ask them to have a cup of coffee with you. And you put Christ in front of them. You ask questions. How are you doing? How are you doing in your walk with the Lord? You can talk about other things, you can talk about work, you can talk about your job, but once again, there is only one thing that is of ultimate importance, and that is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And if I am not convinced or am not assured that my brother or sister is walking with Christ, it makes no difference what benefits or gifts or enjoyments they have in anything else in life if they run the risk of missing Christ. Paul says in Romans 13:8, "Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. You owe your brother and sister the kind of love that would pursue them, that would take notice of their absence, that would take notice of the fact when they start to talk and sound more like the world than they do the people of God, when their loves and affections and desires seem to pull them in ways that are harmful and destruction to them, you owe it to them in the love of Christ to warn them and appeal to them and to persuade them and even plead with them not to walk the way of destruction. Edgewood members, this is one of the reasons why we stress and will continue to stress the importance of coming to members' meetings when we vote new members in. It's important for you to be here to vote new members in because when that person becomes a member of Edgewood, you now are in debt to them. You owe them your love. And they are in debt to you. They owe you their love. 
You need to know who it is that you have connection to and responsibility with for their good. And by the way, for your good too. Because I can promise you that there's not a single person in this room who has not had a point in time in their Christian life where they haven't been the one who's straying and wandering. Where they haven't been in desperate need of another brother or sister to come alongside of them and say, what are you doing? Where are you going? What are you chasing? We are members of one another, and that is what's being communicated in this last final passage. There is a responsibility that we bear for one another to see to it that we live out all of the instructions and commands and exhortations that James has provided in the five chapters of this book. Yes, ultimately we are responsible to God for the way that we live. But God in His grace has provided the means by which he keeps each and every one of us in the faith. And one of the means, one of the means that he has provided is the church. And we are to live in such a way that we keep an eye out for one another and are mindful of the fact that at any given day and time, any one of us is susceptible to be deceived or to be led astray. For Christ's sake, for his reputation. Let's not let that be the case when it comes to the members of Edgewood. Pray with me. Father, in your wisdom, when you reconcile us to your Son and to yourself, you have reconciled us also to one another. When we have fellowship with you through Christ by your Spirit, we have fellowship with one another. Forgive us for our self-centeredness and our selfishness to think that so long as I am doing well spiritually, it is of no concern to me how my brother or sister is doing spiritually. Father, would you cultivate in our hearts and minds the kind of love for one another that is willing to have difficult and even awkward conversations when the situation calls for it. That we would be mindful and watchful over one another. Not to make life difficult or miserable, but so that we can be kept in the faith, firm and fast until the end. We thank you and we praise you that in your wisdom you have created this church for people like us. We ask that you would continue to grow us, that you would mature us, and that you would bring others out of darkness into light to become part of this body where they can be cared for, where they can be kept and instructed on the path of righteousness that leads to life in the end. At the end of the day, though, Father, we thank you that all of this is a work that you promise to accomplish and perfect, that you will not abandon it or us, 
and that the good work that you have begun will be perfected in the day of Christ Jesus. Keep us faithful, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.